Well, good morning. We'll go ahead and get started. Happy Easter. He's risen. There you go. All right. Let's, uh, uh, let's pray for our time together and uh, as people are coming in, and then we'll get started. So, Father, thank you so much for uh, your grace to us. Um, thank you so much for uh, today and an opportunity for us to uh, recognize and to celebrate uh, a reality that really infuses every day with purpose and meaning for uh, the vindication of your son that points forward to our own justification and that points forward to uh, our own resurrection as your son is the first fruits. And, uh, and so though in this uh, time and place uh, we struggle with uh, demonic oppression, with uh, disease, with death, that one day there will be a day uh, when those things uh, will be no more because of the work of your son uh, that we celebrate today. And so we're grateful. We're grateful for the resurrection, an opportunity to celebrate it, uh, to rejoice in it. And, uh, and so would you help us, Lord, help us to feel more uh, grateful and to have our lives compelled by uh, the message of the resurrection of your son. So bless us this morning as we consider uh, the narrative of Scripture, the, the overarching story of uh, your plan of redemption and how you have accomplished that. And, uh, and so help us to, to see and to savor uh, the beauties of your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we are kind of moving from uh, the past few months we've been talking about bibliology. Someone give me just a short definition of what bibliology is. It's the study of something. Study of the Bible, study of God's Word, right? Bibliology, the study of God's Word. And we're moving from bibliology into hermeneutics. Anybody know what hermeneutics means? Interpretation, all right? And so it's related to the, the Greek god Hermes, which was uh, a messenger god. And so hermeneutics is the study of uh, God's Word. How do we interpret God's Word? So we're moving from what is God's Word uh, to how do we interpret it? How do we study it? How do we uh, read it uh, correctly? And so we're kind of moving, transitioning uh, from uh, bibliology into hermeneutics, kind of considering uh, this morning as we begin our look at hermeneutics, how do we study uh, Scripture? We're, we're going to begin with kind of looking at what's the overarching story of Scripture. Sometimes you'll hear it called like the narratival arc of Scripture. Sometimes you'll hear it called the meta narrative. What's the, the big picture story of God's redemptive uh, plan? The reason that we want to do that is because of just the way that stories are so significant in our lives. Think about the way that you uh, will uh, meet somebody. Maybe you uh, are just meeting somebody for, for, for the first time, maybe a, a new member here at the church, and you go out. Uh, for coffee with, uh, with them. And so you and your spouse and this new person and uh, his or her spouse are sitting there over coffee and you begin to ask questions like, tell me about how y'all met. What are you asking there? You're asking for stories, right? And, uh, and so uh, let me tell you about what happened this weekend. In the same way, we're, we're just kind of people that are wired uh, to listen to and to tell and to enjoy the opportunities uh, for stories. And so stories are really significant for us to uh, understand meaning. Not all stories 
are really interesting. In fact, one time I told the staff here like the, the most boring story in the world about my trash can. So ask them to tell you it one day. It will put you to sleep. So not all stories are highly interesting, uh, but all stories have some sort of significance and their significance affects the way that we understand them. So let me give you a scenario. Imagine, if you will, uh, that you leave here, you leave this class, you go into the foyer as you're ready to go into the worship service, and as you're there in the foyer, someone comes up to you, and they lean down into your ear. You can feel their breath on the back of your neck, and they say, Millard Fillmore was the 13th president. All right? Now, that's true, whether you know that or not, but what are you feeling in that moment? Creeped out, right? Who is this person? What are some of, your, uh, some of your options as you're interpreting, what is this person doing? Well, first off, you might think, this person's mentally ill. Why is this person coming up and telling me Millard Fillmore is the 13th president? And maybe they are. Maybe they are mentally ill, right? Maybe they have just some sort of screw loose or something like that. Uh, but maybe that's not it, right? Maybe they just really confused you. Uh, you know, maybe it is uh, they confused uh, Tim and Zach because they both have beards or something like that. And so they just came up to one versus the other uh, because the other was having a conversation just last weekend. And they were like, man, I can't remember. Was Millard Fillmore the 12th president or the 13th or the 14th or something like that? That changes it, right? Now, all of a sudden, this person's not mentally ill. They've just mistaken you for somebody else. Or maybe that's not it. Maybe this person's a spy, and that's like the prearranged signal. And you're supposed to respond with something else that's really, really strange and, and so forth. Um, but we don't know, uh, apart from the context, apart from the overarching sort of story, why is this person coming to me? You don't really understand what the person means. So stories can be highly significant for understanding meaning. And so as we begin to flesh out what is Scripture, as we've done that over the past few weeks, and then how do we interpret Scripture? We want to begin with this story to help us kind of orient ourselves. So let me give you a few reasons why I think this is important for us. As we begin uh, this next 12 weeks or so on hermeneutics, why is it important for us to grasp not only stories and the significance of stories, but this one storyline in particular, the storyline of Scripture that we'll talk about uh, today. So you have these in your notes. Uh, the first one is that most of us grew up in church. Uh, those of us who grew up in church, most of us grew up with a kind of episodic view of Scripture. Right? We know these sort of, uh, of uh, just disconnected stories of Scripture. You know about David and Goliath. You know about Jonah and the fish. Uh, you know about uh, Moses. You know about all of these sort of stories. You know about Noah and a flood. But they seem sort of disconnected. This is the difference between like a sitcom. You know, sitcoms, they're all just kind of individual stories. Each story kind of ends. And then the next week, there's nothing to do with the previous week. That's how most of us kind of grew up reading the Bible. They're these disconnected stories. Whereas instead, the Bible is not like a sitcom. It's like a movie where the entire thing from beginning to end is telling this consistent story. And what we need to do is we need to see how each of the individual pieces fit within, to, uh, fit within that story. Um, and so a, a few weeks back, uh, Jerry uh, let me borrow his uh, Band of Brothers um, 
DVDs, all right? And so I don't know if you've seen Band of Brothers. It's a, a, a war story. The first time I ever watched it, I borrowed it from a guy in seminary who had been a missionary overseas, and so he had a bootleg copy. It may or may not have been illegal. I didn't ask. Uh, but he was overseas in uh, China, and he had brought back uh, this copy of Band of Brothers. And so I did not know that there were two sides to the DVDs. And so I watched one disc. It was finished. I pulled it out, put it in the next disc. It was finished, pulled it out, put in the third disc. It was finished, pulled it out. And I thought, that is the worst movie I've ever seen in my life. Why? Because I missed half of it. I didn't flip over the DVD. So all of a sudden, I would go and I would just skip years in the story or months in the story or whatever it might have been. That is not the way that we want to read the Bible. We want to read the Bible and see this overarching picture And uh, so that's the first reason, to kind of get rid of this idea that it's episodic. You know, if if you're like me, you can put on, so if I'm uh, ironing or something like that, I'll just put on a sitcom. I'll put on an episode of The Office or Parks and Recreation or something like that, and I don't have to pay attention to it at all. Right? That's not the way I watch a movie, though. And so uh, one of the, the, the reasons that we want to, to kind of emphasize this story is to move out of this episodic view into this bigger picture understanding of the story of Scripture. Related to that, a second reason, it helps us to see how all the various strands of God's plan fit together, how all the various scenes within this movie fit together. Imagine, if you will, you have all the parts of an engine all the parts of the engine, and the engine's completely stripped. It's been completely broken down, uh, and so uh, every bolt, every nut, all those things are completely separated. They're all just laying out in front of you, and imagine, you don't know that that's an engine. How are you ever going to put that thing back together? So knowing what it is, it's like doing a jigsaw puzzle, but not having the picture there to really press you towards what is it that we're building. And so one of the things that having this story is going to do is help us kind of bridge all of these different uh, stories together. So if you imagine you're reading the book of Ruth, and the book of Ruth in and of itself is encouraging, but how much more encouraging is it for us when we begin to realize uh, that Ruth is David's great-grandmother? Now, all of a sudden, this story becomes much more significant. Or to recognize that Ruth is Jesus's great, 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 great uh, to the 14th power or something like that grandmother. Now, all of a sudden, you see this is not just a story about God's faithfulness to Naomi and Ruth. This is not just a story of God's faithfulness to Boaz. This is not just a story about God's faithfulness to Israel. This is about God's faithfulness to all people. Because the Messiah comes through this particular story. So it helps us, by having this big picture, it helps us to orient all the different strands together. Another one, it helps you notice little details that you never had before. We talked about this as we looked at uh, the book of Mark. All the different allusions within the book of Mark of Jesus doing things that you read the Old Testament and it's only Yahweh that does this. Only Yahweh walks upon the water And yet, what's Jesus doing? He's walking upon the water. But without this big sort of picture, you don't capture all of those different nuances and so forth. It's kind of like watching a movie with a twist ending, and then you go back and rewatch it, and all of a sudden you see these little hints that the director has put in there. And uh, you never caught them before because you didn't know where it was going. So when we have this big picture, we go back to the scripture, and we see all of these different things that God has embedded within the story. 
Fourth, it helps us to gain a a biblical worldview. If you will, this story kind of becomes for us corrective lenses, right? If you have glasses, if you have contacts, something like that, you tend not to really think about the fact that you have them, and yet everything that you see is influenced by them, right? They are the corrective lenses for you. So in the same sense, the storyline of Scripture that we're going to talk about is kind of a corrective lens uh, for us which uh, relates to our next point, that the storyline of Scripture is going to help us to recognize and to reject false worldviews. It's going to help us to see where our vision is cloudy, where maybe the glasses are a little dirty, and we need to take them off, and we need to clean them. We need to better understand the story because it's obscuring our vision and the way that we uh, live uh, our lives. For instance, when we understand the bigger story, we begin to recognize and to spot things Uh, that are erroneous, like God helps those who help themselves, or God's supreme goal is that you be healthy and wealthy, that humans are basically good, they just need sort of a little prompting in the right direction or something like that. By understanding the bigger story, we can better recognize and and reject these false worldviews, these false uh, theologies. Uh, Six, that helps to keep our focus on Christ. When we read Christologically, we've talked about that uh, before. We read uh, the Bible Christologically. We begin to realize David and Goliath is more than just a story of David and Goliath. It is about how David slew a giant, but it's more than that. It's also more than just you can defeat the giants in your life. In fact, that's the exact opposite of the storyline of Scripture. We actually see in this that this is a story that points us to what we're going to talk about even in our uh, sermon today, that Jesus has defeated the ultimate enemy as the head of his people. He's represented us as David represented Israel. Jesus represents the people of God and slays the giant. And, uh, and so that's the sixth reason. And then lastly, it helps us to understand what God commands of us today. For instance, it helps us to understand how Christians can not be inconsistent when we say things about relating to the Mosaic Law. For instance, when we say things like homosexuality is sinful, and yet we are encouraged to eat catfish or shrimp or whatever it might be, it helps us to orient ourselves and to understand how can these things be true? How are Christians not inconsistent in saying that? So by understanding the story, we kind of are better able to understand the various scenes and settings within that story. We recognize there is a difference between how God relates to his people in the garden, how God relates to his people before uh, the Mosaic law, how he relates to people in the Mosaic law, and then how he relates to people in Christ. And so those are some of the reasons Uh, that uh, I think this story in particular, and beginning with this story, is going to be significant for us as we begin our study of uh, hermeneutics. So, let's get to this story. If I were to ask you, what is the story of Scripture, probably a lot of us would say something like the gospel. We'd be absolutely right. That is kind of the story of Scripture. The story of Scripture is the good news of God's redemption, But what I want to do today is hopefully kind of expand our vision of what the gospel is. A lot of you know that I have an an affinity for uh, Africa. I've been over there a handful of times. One of my favorite places in the world is this little compound in uh, in South Sudan. For some reason, I just 
I love it. I've been over there six times. Uh, I love the people. I love the culture. Uh, I, everything about it is, uh, is really inconvenient and against all of the, the, the comforts of life that I've become accustomed to. Uh, there's hardly any electricity. They just run off a generator like an hour or so a day. Uh, there's certainly no air conditioning. Uh, there's no uh, hot water. There's none of that. And, uh, and, and yet this is a place that, that the Lord has really been gracious to me. And so uh, I, I've mentioned before how on my first time to fly over there, I was so anxious and thought for certain I'm going to, to crash and either die from the plane crash or be eaten by lions whenever I hit the ground or something like that, that I couldn't, uh, I couldn't do anything on, on the plane. I was nauseous. All I could do is just recite Scripture over and over and over again uh, to myself. Uh, I was so anxious. And the Lord was really gracious and delivered me from that. And every subsequent trip, uh, that I took over there, there's this little puddle jumper that you have to do from uh, Uganda into South Sudan. And, uh, and so this little bitty uh, twin prop uh, uh, plane uh, that holds about 12 people, uh, you're going, you're, you're only flying uh, at a couple thousand feet or something like that. And so I look down out the window, and I love just to see uh, the huts, to the villages, the mountains, the contours, the land, the trees, and so forth. And then you land on a little dirt strip, and then there's a quote-unquote airport, which is literally less than half the size of this room, and, uh, and it's just a concrete building. That's all it is, and, uh, and so you just uh, get your stuff right off the plane. You just grab it off the plane, and, uh, and then you get in a van, and they take you to the compound. And then I love to stare out the window on the van ride into uh, the compound from the airport. And uh, to see the faces of soldiers and mothers and fathers and children uh, and, uh, and so forth. And I wonder, through which of those windows have I seen more of Africa? Have I seen more of Africa through the windows of that plane from 5,000 feet and to see the hills and the contours of the land? Or have I seen more of Africa in the faces of the people that I'm driving by? And I think for, for most of us, when we think of the, uh, the gospel, we think more of that van ride. And what I want to do today is I want to talk more about that plane ride as it relates to the gospel. That we tend to think of the gospel in uh, sort of uh, these perspectives of what, how does it impact personal lives? How does it impact individual lives? And that's an absolutely important, vital aspect of the gospel. But there is a bigger picture of the gospel there's a bigger picture of this story of Scripture that's more overarching, that's more cosmic in uh, its uh, content and uh, effects. Oftentimes you'll see the Bible and it kind of weaves together the individual and the cosmic, the personal and the cosmic, the, uh, the picture of uh, looking, on, uh, looking at faces through a van and then looking at the contours of the land from a plane. And so if you have a Bible and you want to open to Colossians 1, I just want to show you one example of how the Bible will kind of weave together these two complementary perspectives on the gospel Colossians 1, starting in verse uh, 3, says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. 
Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So here Paul is writing to individual believers. You have this uh, sort of uh, uh, perspective of the gospel. Uh, that's the word that's used there in, uh, in verse 5, that he's talking about the gospel and that it's bearing fruit and growing in this particular congregation, kind of a more personal, individual perspective. Indeed, in the whole world, there's this cosmic scope. Reading on from there, verse 9, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, <coughs> Bear, <coughs> excuse me, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So you have this personal dimension in which the gospel is bearing fruit in individual lives and in the corporate church, but also this cosmic dimension in the language, especially of verses 13 through 14, which talks about a dominion. It talks about a kingdom. Verses 15 through 20 he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace with the blood of the cross. So again, you kind of go up into the clouds, this cosmic perspective that Jesus is not just reconciling you and me, but indeed all things in heaven and on earth, that he created all things and he's before all things and in him all things hold together. So again, you get this big picture view of God's redemptive plan. And then in 21 through 23, it comes back down onto this personal level again, uh, and so you, uh, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So again, there is this uh, personal uh, view of the gospel, and then there is this bigger picture view of the gospel. And what we want to do this morning is not in any way to neglect or to negate or to deny or ignore the personal dimensions of the gospel. In fact, uh, Zach will talk about some of those things in the sermon, but in instead to give us this uh, exalted view of the more cosmic dimension of God's redemptive uh, plans And in order to do that, we want to talk about something that we've talked about before, that is the kingdom of God. This is the sort of unifying motif of Scripture, sort of the unifying theme of Scripture, if not the theme of Scripture, at least one of the major themes of Scripture. We've talked about this before, but it bears repeating. There's literally nothing that Jesus speaks about more than the kingdom of God, not love, not faith, 
not grace. All of these things that we tend to think of, if someone asks you what's the gospel, we tend to respond with something like love, faith, belief, uh, justification, and so forth. All those things true? Absolutely. Do those things have implications as our, in our understanding of the gospel? Absolutely. But what is it that Jesus most talks about when he talks about uh, the gospel? He talks about the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, he says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He tells us to pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field. The kingdom of heaven is like a net thrown into the sea. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The kingdom of God is among you. And on and on and on and on we could go. Because this is the thing that Jesus talks about more than he talks about anything else. In fact, uh, it is generally viewed that the kingdom is a summarization of the message of the gospel. See the way that Mark says this. Now, after John was arrested, I think this is in your notes, Mark 1, 14 through 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God there uh, and the gospel are paralleled. They're, uh, they're almost synonymous in this context. One explains the other. Matthew is going to be even more explicit in linking these together. Matthew 4, 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That's an interesting phrase, the gospel of the kingdom, in healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Matthew 9, 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, in healing every disease and every affliction. Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So again, this idea of the kingdom is this huge, major theme within Scripture. It is that larger picture view of God's redemptive plan. The overarching storyline of Scripture is the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom? Graham Goldsworthy says it like this, God's people in God's place under God's rule. So imagine if uh, there, I'm in that plane on the way into South Sudan, and I look and I uh, see off in the distance, about 10 miles down the road from the airport, uh, I see this, uh, this massive accident. Uh, and uh, in, in, in South Sudan, you can't get off the roads because there's still mines all over the place uh, off the roads. And, uh, and so if, if a road is blocked, you just sit there, right? Unless you've already gone another way, you can't just go off to the side of the road and go around the accident or whatever it might be. It's dirt roads and there's mines on either side. So imagine I see this. When I get off the plane, I'm going to tell uh, that person in the van, I'm going to say, let's go a different direction. Why? Because I've gotten this view from way up here that's now going to affect me on this individual level. So what I'm hoping happens in all of our hearts, the more that we understand this big picture view, is it begins to influence the way that we live our lives on a real personal day-to-day sort of basis. There's no area of your life that's not affected by this message. The way that you consider your marriage, if you all of a sudden recognize, I'm subject to a king and he's made certain demands of me, all of a sudden, that changes the way I think about marriage, changes the way I think about work, changes the way I think about leisure, changes the way I think about uh, my checkbook, changes the way I think about all things in life, the way I parent, and on and on we could uh, go. And so let's begin 
uh, with scene one, scene one, the prologue. Any good story has a prologue. Most movies, uh, most books, whatever it might be, begin with some sort of period where there's this calm uh, before the, uh, the conflict. There's always some period of peace or prosperity, whatever it might be, uh, before the main characters are kind of thrust into danger. And that's where the Bible begins. The Bible begins with these words, in the beginning, in the beginning. What do you think of when you think of a kingdom? Name some things that you think of when you think of a kingdom. King? Yeah, absolutely. Keep going. Castles, yeah. Scepters? Orders? Borders? Yeah. Subjects? Yeah. All of these things, right? You think of all of these different things, castles, crowns, scepters, uh, but more than that, you think of a king. That was the first answer. That's great. That's the main character of this story. That's the protagonist of this story. So there's a question for you. When you think of God, is one of your fundamental ideas of who God is a king? A.W. Tozer said this, that what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. When you think about God, do you think about him as a king? For most people in Western evangelical culture, that's not one of the first images that comes to mind. We think of him as a father. We think of him as a friend or something else, and that's absolutely appropriate. We should think of him in those uh, uh, conceptions uh, if we love and trust him. But it's not complete because the Bible is saturated with this concept of God being a king. And what does this king do in the beginning? He plants a garden. My wife Casey is uh, planting a little herb garden in our backyard. Don't think of that. When you think of this garden that God plants, think of something like Central Park. This massive sort of thing. And in the ancient Near Eastern context uh, and culture, uh, gardens were places for the display of the splendor and glory and beauty of kings. That's what gardens were. Uh, they were these vast uh, things with flowing rivers and waterfalls and fountains and pools and all kinds of things. So we have uh, the, the hanging gardens of Babylon that you might have heard of. Or if you go and you read uh, through the Old Testament, you have Solomon and, the, and the, uh, the various gardens that he creates and so forth. These massive sort of things as a, an ornament to his beauty and splendor. That's what a king does in the ancient Near Eastern context. He creates these gardens, and that's what this king does. That's what God, Yahweh, does. He creates this uh, garden, and he creates within the garden an image of himself. This also has ancient Near Eastern sort of cultural context. Oftentimes, a king would plant a garden, and then he'd take an obelisk, he'd take uh, some sort of stone, he'd take some sort of carving uh, an idol, and he'd place it there in the, in, uh, in the middle of the garden. And the idea is this is a representation that this king rules here. Nebuchadnezzar rules here. Solomon rules here. Whoever it might be. He creates this image, and he places it in the garden as a sign that you might be walking through the garden, and you're wondering, mm, I wonder who owns this garden. I wonder who rules this garden. I wonder who ordered this garden. And then you see the image, and you say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, Solomon. And so what does God do? He creates this garden, and then what does he do? He creates image. He creates an image, the same Hebrew word, salem, this word that means image. 
Not that we look like God, but that we look like him in some ways more than anything else that he created. And he gives us a task, and that task actually points us to how we bear the image of God. The task that he gives us is to subdue the earth and to rule over it. In other words, we're exercising his dominion such that whenever anyone sees you or I because we're made in the image of God, we are there to think Yahweh rules here. Yahweh rules here. As mankind spreads throughout the earth, the imagery there is the glory of God is filling the earth. And people are to think Yahweh rules here. Not just in Eden, but in the garden as it is expanding, as mankind uh, expands. So what's happening here in these first couple of chapters of Genesis where we get this prologue to the story? Namely, you have this imagery of God and man dwelling uh, together. And think about that for a second. What do we call the place where heaven and earth meet? What are other religions? What do they call their places of worship? Anybody? Buddhist temples, right? The place where heaven and earth meet is called a temple. It's a place where God dwells. And that's what's happening here in the garden, that man is walking with God. A temple, most religions, what do they put in their temples? They put idols within their temple. God doesn't put idols in his temple, but he puts images in his temple. He builds a temple, if you will. He builds a place where his glory can dwell among mankind. And in it, he puts an image. Now, with that in mind... Consider the greater story of Scripture, and you begin to understand the significance of when Solomon comes along and builds a temple. He's kind of trying to get back to this imagery that uh, has been lost, where God is dwelling among his people. There's been a separation. That's what's going on there. And whenever we get to Jesus, and he's said to be the temple, and the church is said to be the temple, that Jesus' body is the temple, and we get to another garden in Revelation where God and man yet again dwell together. So the storyline begins to tie up the loose ends or vaguely connected stories. We've just tied Eden all the way into Israel, all the way into Jesus, to the church, and into eternity. The entire storyline is telling the story of a king who has built a garden or a temple in which to dwell among his uh, people. Scene two, though, offers the conflict. Any good story has an aspect of conflict. This is why my trash can story that I told to the staff is not a good story. There was no conflict. There's no conflict. There's no resolution. There's no point to my story, but I told it for some reason. And, uh, and so any good story, though, has some degree of conflict that helps us get into the resolution. There's always some degree of adversity that is represented there. And that's what happens in scene two with the rebellion. After some period of time, we have no idea exactly how long it, it was uh, that uh, things continued in this state of shalom, of, of wholeness, of peace, of prosperity, of welfare, uh, where God dwelled among his people. But somewhere along the line, there is a fracture in this as uh, mankind uh, rebels. And as a result of this, they're all of the things. Think about all of the things that afflict your life. Think of all the things that plague your life. All of those things enter in through this one little fracture. What seems to be such a small thing, right? It seems to be so small. Adam and Eve, they just 
took some fruit that they weren't supposed to eat. And yet this one small little thing, we see that this is actually not some small thing. This is cosmic treason. This is rebellion against a king. And so demonic oppression, disease, death, disorder, all of these things, chaos, war, injustice, poverty, all of these things enter into what was previously a perfect creation through this period of rebellion. And so the fracture continues to manifest. Uh, You continue to read through the book of Genesis. And what's interesting is uh, for the next uh, few chapters or so, you just see the increasing effects of sin. The increasing effects of sin is there's more murder, there's more boasting, there's more arrogance, and then there's judgment, but not final judgment. Things, just when things begin to look like they can't get any worse. So we get into uh, Genesis, the later uh, parts of Genesis 8, 9, 10, 11, and all of the various accounts there of Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, the, uh, the flood and, uh, and Babel and on and on. Just when you think it can't get any worse, there's this flicker of hope with the introduction of a man, Abram, soon to be Abraham, who's called to be this light in the midst of the darkness. In a sense, he's called to, uh, to be kind of the, the coast guard uh, entering into this fray and helping lead God's people out of the storm What we'll find over time, though, is the Coast Guard itself gets lost in the storm as Israel is going to be uh, corrupted uh, through the effects of sin. But you have this introduction of uh, this character, Abraham, and through his offspring, uh, there is this promise of deliverance. And though his offspring are privy to great blessings, they've tasted and seen the power of God's promises, just like their ancestor, they too rebel and reject their king. Each generation, someone arises and hopes arise that this might be the one. This might be the promised deliverer. This might be the one who's going to set right what is wrong. But for every Isaac, there's an Ishmael. For every David, there's a Bathsheba. And so the nation continues to experience separation from the Lord, ex- exile. They're cut off from the garden of the promised land. The same sort of imagery that's used of Adam and Eve being banished from the garden is used of Israel being banished out of the promised land as a result of their rejection of their king. They're made to wander in the wilderness. Again, this coast guard that was sent to rescue and to redeem is itself lost in the storm at sea. And the light begins to flicker and eventually appears to completely extinguish talked about this when we talked about intertestamental history for hundreds of years there's silence absolute silence for you for me to flip over from Malachi to Matthew takes one second for Israel and their experience that's hundreds of years 400 years of silence imagine that 400 years no prophetic word no hearing from Yahweh absolute silence darkness any flickering light of hope seems to be completely extinguished until you get to scene four and the voice of one crying in the wilderness, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. 
This is the significance of John the Baptist, because for 430 years or so, there had been no prophetic voice, and all of a sudden, you have someone in the wilderness saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You have a prophet of God back in Israel. So we get to scene four, the king kind of get to the, the nearing the climax of the story. And what does Jesus do? You have John the Baptist, he comes on the scene, he points to this greater one, he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, and then he begins to turn all of his focus on this other one. He says, I'm gonna decrease. Don't look at me. Look at this other one. Look at this king. I'm not the king. I'm the bridegroom, or uh, I'm the friend of the bridegroom. Look at the bridegroom, though. Rejoice in him. Look at the king. And he begins to fade uh, until he is uh, ultimately uh, killed, martyred uh, for his prophecy. And so the attention turns to uh, the king. And what does Jesus go around doing? He's healing diseases. He's casting out demons. He's reversing disasters like the storm on the sea. He's raising the dead. All of the effects of the curse, all of the bad things that enter into the world, all of the things that come in through the fracture of the fall, all of these things Jesus is reversing in his ministry. In other words, he's demonstrating the kingdom has been inaugurated. That's what Zach's going to talk about in his uh, sermon uh, later, that the kingdom of light, the kingdom of life has broken into, has inundated the kingdom, the domain of darkness and uh, death. What's interesting for us is most of us, again, as we think of Jesus, like we think of God in general, the triune God, when most of us think of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, we don't tend to think of him as a king. That doesn't tend to be where our mind initially goes. Again, we think of him as a friend, we think of ourselves as the bride of Christ. There's a really interesting scene, if you've seen um, the Netflix uh, series, The Crown. I've talked about it before in a, uh, a sermon. It's a uh, kind of a uh, docudrama or something like that, a historical sort of retelling of uh, Queen Elizabeth and, uh, and her reign and rule and some of the events going on uh, in her uh, lifetime. And there's this really interesting scene where she is about to be uh, uh, or, or she's in her coronation service, and there's this scene uh, where it is uh, uh, demanded that Prince Philip, her husband, uh, the queen's uh, consort, has to kneel before her, right? There's this, it's this really compelling, powerful scene. He's, he's kind of, in, at least in the, uh, uh, the show, he's kind of conflicted uh, about this. How do I, as the husband, kneel to my wife, and yet also at the same time, I'm a subject uh, to a queen, that's what's going on in a sense. Even though we are the bride of Christ, we're still subject to him as our uh, king. And so we take a posture of kneeling before him. That's what repentance and faith is. Repentance and faith is a recognition of his lordship. Imagine, if you will, that a king has come and surrounded you with his armies. And you look around and you know there is no escape, there is no hope whatsoever. And yet he comes to you and he says, I will make a treaty with you. I will give you terms of surrender. Here's all you have to do. Lay down your arms and submit. That's it. Lay down your arms and submit. That's what faith and repentance is. Repentance, turning away from sin, surrendering. Faith, turning towards the Lord. What's interesting is there is this, uh, again, there, there is this sense 
in evangelical theology where we kind of downplay Jesus as king. There's even been a, 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 a surge of teaching that, uh, that kind of uh, encapsulate the novel idea that you could have Jesus as, Lord, as Savior but not as Lord, which completely undermines this motif of Scripture, this theme of Scripture as uh, Jesus as uh, King. It leads us into scene five, which is the church. In scene five, we meet the new citizens of this kingdom, those who have been submitted to the lordship of this king. That's the scene that you and I find ourselves in today, in this scene of the church age, a time between the two appearances of the king. He's come, and yet he's coming again, having ascended to the Father. The Son has promised to gather his own to him yet again and to judge the world so the kingdom, this begins to transcend borders. We have this even in the book of Acts with the gospel being uh, birthed there in Jerusalem and then going out from Jerusalem to Judea, from Judea to Samaria, from Samaria to the ends of the earth, which is where we are here in McKinney, to the ends of the earth from uh, Jerusalem. The gospel has expanded, and uh, it's not only transcended these geographical borders, but it's transcended socioeconomic borders, Borders of gender, race, ethnicity, language. People of every tongue, tribe, and nation come and worship and serve this king as a down payment or promise of future glory, which is what scene six is about, the consummation. That the kingdom has started, the kingdom has begun. It's already, and yet it's not yet. There is a sense in which what Jesus has begun is waiting for completion. It's waiting for consummation. It's waiting for the king to uh, return. It, we, we've used this imagery before that what Jesus has done there in his death and in his resurrection is like D-Day. It is the decisive victory. And certainly from that point on, uh, the Axis powers are going to lose. Once that battle is determined, the war is determined but there are skirmishes along the way. That's basically what we find ourselves in today, that Jesus has won the decisive victory. He's conquered death. He's conquered diseases. He's conquered demons, all of these sorts of things. And yet that full day, that victory day, the V-day, is yet to come. And so this message, this message of the kingdom, this message of this glorious overarching picture this narratival arc as we consider the fact that we are not only uh, beholden to a bridegroom, but also to a king begins to compel us forward on mission as we seek for others to be subject to this kingdom. So I want to leave us just with this, uh, this passage and a consideration of it. Matthew thirteen forty four says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. You know, oftentimes you'll, you'll hear these stories of um, someone who was at a garage sale or an estate sale or they were looking in their own attic or something and they came across some great treasure. Um, and, uh, and depending on the perspective of the story, they either did or did not know that this was a great Treasure. Imagine, if you will, that you know nothing about baseball cards. For some of us, that's not hard at all. 
for others of us. We collected baseball cards when we were growing up. And imagine you find an Onus Wagner baseball card, right? If you collect baseball cards, you're following that analogy. If you don't, you have no idea who Onus Wagner is. That's the point, right? Because if you found that, you may or may not know that you have a treasure on your hand. If you don't know it, you're just going to throw it out, along with all the other baseball cards. If you do know it, you know you have about a million dollars right there in your hand. But imagine you don't know that. You don't know the value of it. Are you going to sell all your possessions for that? No. Is that going to be the one thing if you rush into your house, you've already gotten your family out, you can grab one possession, is that Onus Wagner baseball card going to be the one thing that you grab? No. Why? Because for you it doesn't have value. In the same way, the kingdom is inherently valuable, unlike an Onus Wagner card. They're not inherently valuable. It's valuable because there's, they're so rare. But the kingdom, if it's not valuable to you, you're not going to do this, that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field and a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So what we want to do over the next a few weeks together in studying the scriptures, uh, we kind of want to give us better ways of studying scripture. In essence, what we're doing in these classes, you might wonder, why don't we spend a whole lot of time in the Bible itself, right? And, and, and even moving into uh, our uh, time on hermeneutics, we're not going to spend the bulk of our time just reading the Bible. Why is that? In essence, what, what we want to do is we want to, uh, to have this time uh, together as like a practice. This is like practices, right? I, one thing I hated about sports growing up is that we never got to actually like scrimmage and practice. That's not all we ever did. We got to do that like once every 10 times. I wanted to do that once every one time. Every single time, I just wanted to scrimmage. I didn't ever want to practice. I don't want to run laps. I don't want to run lines. I don't want to practice drills. I just wanted to scrimmage. I just wanted to play. But that doesn't make me much better at the end of the day. And so what we want to do in our time uh, together over the next few weeks is really to, uh, to learn some more of the disciplines of studying so that whenever we're at home by ourselves, whenever we're at coffee with a friend, whenever we're at community group, whatever it might be, in these contexts where we're actually sitting down with the scripture, so then we can play the game. Because we've practiced here. That's, what, that's why we call these theological equipping classes. That's the task of the church. Ephesians uh, chapter 4. We'll talk about this as we enter into a season where we're preaching through Ephesians. Uh, that God has given the apostles, the, uh, the pastors, the evangelists, the teachers, and so forth to equip the saints for the work of ministry. There's this aspect of equipping, and that's what we're doing uh, together in our uh, times. And so I hope that we enjoy that as we begin to transition now from bibliology into hermeneutics, that is, from what Scripture says uh, to how do we, uh, or what Scripture is to what Scripture says and how do we read and interpret and apply it.